earlier this year, I got a brand new laptop, a brand new work laptop. Oh, Windows 7 in all its glory. Sorry. Sorry, Mac users. <clears throat> and uh, right before this month started, the, the folks in G-Town came to me and they said, we would like to project something every week in the month of October. Could we borrow your laptop? Well, knowing, of course, as a pastor that God wants me to share... <laughs> I knew what the answer was already, but I had this internal struggle. So I was like, well, sure, yes, of course you can have my laptop. But then I had that little voice, you know, that's in the back part of my mind, which was, you know, unlike the grown-upville, they do a lot of, like, running and jumping and bumping into things. And they use these little wobbly tables to put computers on. And what if it falls? What if it breaks? What if it's damaged? I mean, because it's not like we have money set aside to do, you know, new laptop version too. I mean, it's just not there. And so, you know, there's that, just that little bit of fear, you know, what if, what if it breaks? Um, there's not a day that goes by in your life that does not have some element of fear in it. This past Tuesday, it was the weather. I got to go to the um, Garden Gate preschool Halloween party, and the teachers had drafted me to be a Halloween helper for their Halloween party, which was Tuesday afternoon. I don't know if you remember Tuesday afternoon. It was the, the big windstorm of death with all the tornadoes. Okay, so we show up, and we're dropping our kids off, and, and Mrs. Sims in her sing-song voice goes, Now, parent helpers, we're just going to do our party right away because there's storms coming, so we want to get it in. So if you could just stay now... And I'm thinking, trapped, okay? And, and so I get my stuff that I was supposed to bring, and we, and we go in, and we're trick-or-treating in the courthouse. And uh, Mrs. Cox is right by me. We all have to hold the hands of a, you know, preschoolers. We're going through the courthouse to do our trick-or-treating. And, you know, remember, what do, we, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? What do you say, Maddie? Trick or, trick or, treat. Okay, good job, Maddie. Okay, here we'll go to the next one. So we're going around, and Mrs. Cox gets a phone call. And it's her daughter who's at, at one of the high schools. And she's like, Mom, there's, there's a tornado coming at the school. What do I do? Uh, honey, you need to do what the teachers tell you. You should go, you know, where do you go? Okay, well, Mom, they've got the alarm. I got to go. I got to go. Click. <laughs> okay? Yeah, see all the moms that have teenage children's, your heart just leapt, okay? The rest of the trick-or-treating, Mrs. Cox is having to fight back tears, and I'm having to... She's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Let's sing Kumbaya. Everybody, Kumbaya. It's going to be okay. It's all right, you know. And it wasn't until 30 minutes later when her daughter called back that she could breathe again because, you know, it activated the fear thing. You know, what if the tornado hits the school? What if my daughter, what if she's got, what if, you know, what ifs? Uh, what ifs are everywhere. Think back to your first job that you had. There was a little bit of an element of fear at that first job. What if they don't like me? <laughs> What if I stink <laughs> at what they hired me to do? What if I don't do a good job? Or think about your first day of school. Not for you, but there was an element of fear for your mother, right? What if they lose them? What if they lose her? Oh, what if there's a bully? Oh, what if they cry all day and they miss me that much? Oh, Okay, you, you know, your mom was sweating it that first day of school. Or think back to the last visit to the dentist. There was an element of fear. Now, I'm not talking if you went in because there were cavities. It's the one-word things in dentists that, 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 that are okay. Cavity, all you have is a drill. But it's the two-word things that dentists have. Those are the things to be afraid of. Gum disease. Root canal. <laughs> impacted tooth. 
all of which require tools, <laughs> extraction devices, things that hold your mouth up open for periods of time that God did not design your mouth to be open for, okay? Uh, things to truly be afraid of. There is not a day that goes by without some element of fear. And when it comes to money and possessions, fear can drive us to keep what we have. Fear can drive us to, to hold on and keep it secure. Fear can drive us to hoard what we have. What if the economy never gets better? What if, what if I lose my job? What if I get sick? What if I get a divorce? What if? I mean, what if, what if, what if? Now, before you dismiss these what-ifs as being a little bit irrational, consider this fact. In 2002, 90% of all bankruptcies in the United States were due to one of three things, a job loss, a divorce, or a major illness. Which fears warrant your attention and which ones are benign? And how do you sort that out? And here's, here's something. What are you more afraid of? Are you more afraid of not having enough? Or are you more afraid of not having God involved in your finances? Today, I want to suggest to you that it's actually smarter, it's actually wise to fear not having God involved in your finances more. Uh, I want to suggest that to you. Uh, because of all the things to fear, that should be the thing that concerns you most, going it alone financially, going through life and keeping God out of your financial picture. Why? Because when you're faithful, when you're faithful, God will provide what you need. When you're faithful, God will provide what you need. That's the promise of Matthew 6. You know, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus goes on this little thing about birds and lilies and all this, you know, flowery stuff. But the point of it is simply, don't worry. Don't worry. In essence, in Matthew 6, what God is saying, God is saying to you and God is saying to me, hey, look, if you'll put my needs, if you'll put my needs first, if you'll go about meeting my needs, I'll go about meeting your needs. And that's, in essence, what God is saying. And so, uh, just to show you how true that is, I want to look at a couple of stories in the Old Testament that involve two different women who desperately needed help, and God provided what they needed. And they're found in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 4. 2 Kings, chapter 4, and that's where we're going to be today. 2 Kings, chapter 4. These two stories involve a man of God named Elisha. Elisha was a prophet and he was the successor and the apprentice to Elijah, a different man. And Elisha was assigned the task of being a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom. And God gave him this message. Go to Israel and tell him this. I am so upset with you, I'm going to nuke your face off. I'm going to send the horde armies of Persia, and they're going to wipe you off the face of the earth. Repent. His was a popular message. In fact, he was getting asked to speak all over the pay place, $1,000 speaking fees. No, 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 okay? It was a hard life if you were Elisha, okay? Because at the time, everyone, I mean, most of the people in northern, the northern kingdom, most of the people in Israel were actually worshiping Baal. Even the kings themselves of Israel were worshiping Baal. So it was a tough time to be a loyalist to God, all right? Well, that's where we pick it up, and that's chapter 4, verse 1. One day, the widow of one of Elisha's fellow prophets came to Elisha and cried out to him, My husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord, but now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. Josephus tells us that this woman is actually the widow of Obadiah. Obadiah was the servant 
of King Ahab, and he was the guy who risked his life to save a hundred prophets from uh, Jezebel, who wanted to have them all take, taken up in a line and killed, because she was sick and tired of hearing the hope. I, you know, repent. She didn't want to hear it anymore. She wanted them all killed. And so this man, Obadiah, borrowed some money, according to Josephus, and, and used that money to help maintain them and keep them safe while they were hiding from Queen Jezebel. And so apparently he's died, and now the creditor has come expecting payment for the money that was borrowed. And in ancient Israel, they had this wonderful system called debt slavery. <laughs> it was really cool. If you couldn't pay the debt, you could just become a debt slave. Um, it was a common practice, and it was commonly abused. In fact, when the Israelites were coming back to their ter- territory after being in exile for 70 years, here's the percentage. One out of every five Israelites was a debt slave. One out of five. Okay? Um, and so here's the story and how it unfolds, and that's verses 2 through verses, uh, verse 7. What can I do to help you, Elijah asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? <laughs> Nothing at all except a flask of olive oil, she replied. Verse 3, And Elisha said, Borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jar, setting the jars aside as they're filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons brought many jars to her, and she filled one after another. Soon, every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, Now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and there'll be enough money left over to support you and your son. This miracle happened behind closed doors. No one saw it but the woman and her two sons. And no one would know about it but the woman and her two sons, and now all of us because it's recorded in Scripture. She used what she had. She got help, and God intervened. This woman, even if she wasn't Obadiah's wife, was clearly a loyalist to God. She was faithful to God at a time when so many other people weren't. And because she was faithful, because she didn't bow down to Baal, and because she had a need, God met her need. And, and uh, the, the implication of this story is that uh, it's kind of reaching out of the text, and it's wanting to grab hold, of, grab hold of you and grab hold of me and say, look, look, here's this just anonymous woman from nowhere in Israel. And she desperately needed God's help, and because she was faithful, God came in, and God met her need. And if she could count on God, you can count on God. If she can count on God to come through for her, you can count on God to come through for you. Um, The first year of generations, I didn't take a salary at all. Uh, I think now I'm up to like half a salary, but back then there was like none, okay? No salary whatsoever. And when it came time to Christmas time, Jenny and I didn't have money for, to buy Christmas gifts. It's not a need, it's an extra, okay? No big deal. We could go through life without them. Unbeknownst to us, there was a small group in another church that had been praying for us, and God prompted them to take up a gift offering one night in their small group meeting, and they sent it along the week before Thanksgiving. And do you know how much it was? The exact amount of money we had spent on Christmas gifts the year before. Now, again, buying Christmas gifts for family and the kids, that's not a need. But Jenny and I received the message in that of God saying, I care about you. I'm watching out for you. It's okay. It's going to be okay. You can trust me. The real need had happened five months before that. Five months before that, uh, Jenny and I had come out of a year and a half long process of knowing God wanted us to start a church. God wanted, you know, 
start a church, start a church, start a church, and we, and we had that stirring, and we had that clarity, but we were scared. We didn't, we didn't have any funding. We didn't have a denomination. We didn't know how to go about and do it. I'm not a trained church planner, okay? And, and we were scared, and we were nervous, but one day in late summer, we made a decision that I would go ahead and give up my job, and we would jump off this cliff and do this regardless. Within two hours of that decision, Jenny had gotten a job teaching that would pay for, pay for a roof over our heads and put food on the table. Coincidence? No, that was God responding to an act of faith. And here's something important. Here's an important principle I want to draw out of this passage as we're talking about what it means to count on God, and that's this. A lot of people think that miracles produce faith. That's not how it works. Miracles do not produce faith, but faith produces miracles. Let me explain. And if you doubt me, I would just point to the life of Jesus. Let's look at Jesus for a moment. The miracle man. I mean, come on. He comes on the scene. The lame are walking. Woo, look at me. I've got legs. I'm walking. Praise uh, Yahweh. I mean, just dancing and jumping in the street. Blind people can see. And then toward the end of his ministry, there's Lazarus and some people who were dead. And hello, they're now alive. Dead people walking around. And they're not corpses. This isn't, you know, (laughs) these aren't zombies. These are brought back to life, living, breathing people. Okay? But they nail him to a cross. In fact, there's this point in John's gospel where Jesus says something that's a little weird. And the bulk of the crowd get up and they walk away. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you're not going to leave too, are you? Okay? Miracles don't produce faith. But faith... Faith can produce miracles. Um, We see that in Joshua in the Israelites. They're told, cross the Jordan River. This is in the book of Joshua. And they get down, they're going down into the valley, and they get to the point, and the water is at flood stage, and it's whirling past them. I can't imagine looking at that water and thinking, okay, cross the Jordan River. Hmm. And they had a moment. We're going to stop. We're going to go back. We're going to do what God told us. What are we going to do? So they take a literally a step of faith, and the priests step in the river. And you know what happens? The water drains and stops flowing. There's some blockage upstream that God had arranged. It was a miracle. But it didn't happen until they took a step of faith. It's called a step of faith. A step of faith shows God that you're taking him seriously. A step of faith is the soil in which God can actually grow a miracle. Um, there's a second story here in chapter 4. I don't want to read it, so don't bother showing all those verses because there's like 35 of them. All right? But I want to tell you about this other woman. Uh, there was a woman from Shunem, a village called Shunem. She was well-to-do. She was wealthy. And she knew of Elisha. She knew he traveled through her part of the Jezreel Valley. And she convinced her husband to furnish a room on the upstairs part of their house so that Elisha would have a place to stay every time he was passing through. She just wanted to be generous, okay, and hospitable. Well, in verse 13, uh, Elisha summons her, and he basically asks, I mean, thanks, room, I mean, it's just, what, what, can, what can I do for you? I mean, I could talk to the king. I could talk to the army officers. I mean, we could reduce your taxes. I know you're paying out the, out the nose for that. You know, is there, is, come on. is there anything I can do for you? Oh, no. Oh, no, she says. Nothing. I don't need anything. And, and she leaves. Well, Elisha pulls his assistant, Gehazi, over, and, and, and he asks him, come on, sure, I mean, surely there's something we can do for her. And he's like, boss, she doesn't have any kids. Hello? 
call her back, call her back. So she comes back up into his room, and he's, he's like, honey, <laughs> this time next year, God's going to give you a son. I'm sorry? Yeah, God's going to give you. And sure enough, a year later, she gives birth to a healthy baby boy. But here's where the story turns. A few years after that, that same boy is working out in the fields with his father and with the servants. And the, the text tells us that he grabs his head and he starts shouting, my head, my head, and he collapses. Well, the servants take, her, take him up to the house where his mother is, up on the porch, and they put him in her lap, and he's breathing laboriously the rest of the morning, and at noon, he dies. Well, she orders the servants, take his body and put it on that prophet's bed upstairs. She gets on a donkey, and she rides off to find him. And sure enough, when she encounters Elijah, this is what she says, and it's in verse 28. Then she said, it was you, my Lord, who said I would have a son, and did I not tell you not to raise my hopes? I mean, can you feel the, the God problem percolating in her soul? I mean, come on. I didn't ask for a kid. I didn't ask you for a kid. And then, boom, the one thing I had hoped for my whole life, and there it is, and you take him? What kind of God is that? I mean, what? Well, Elijah knows this is no simple tragedy. I mean, there's a lot more going on here. And so he tells his servant, Gehazi, take my staff, run, go to the house and put my staff on that boy's body. Go now. So off he goes. And this woman and the prophet get on their donkeys and head out to Shunem. Halfway there, his assistant, Gehazi, comes back and says, boss, I put the staff on the kid. I mean, he's deader than a doornail. Nothing happened. Well, they keep walking, and when Elisha arrives, this is what the text tells us, and that's in verses 32 and following. When Elisha arrived, the child was indeed dead, lying there on the prophet's bed. He went in alone and shut the door behind him and prayed to the Lord. And then he laid down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, and his hands on the child's hands. And the child's body began to grow warm again. Exclamation point. Elisha got up and walked back and forth in the room a few times. I mean, can you sense the urgency? I mean, he's pacing. All right, God, you got to come through for this woman. I mean, this boy has got to come back to life. All right? Elijah got up and walked back and forth in the room, and then he stretched himself out again on the child, and this time the boy sneezed seven times, which any Jewish reader would go, oh, he's back to normal. He's good as gold. Seven is a you know, the number of wholeness, okay, and opened his eyes. Then Elisha summoned Gehazi, call the child's mother, he said. And when she came in, Elisha said, here, take your son. And she fell at his feet in gratitude. We see this man of God concerned, concerned and bothered by the turn of events. And he's showing us that God is concerned and bothered. See, God cares about you. God cares about what's going on in your life. God cares about the circumstances that you're facing. God cares, and God cares enough to act. Believe it or not, God cares enough to act. And here's the bottom line again. When you're faithful, you can count on God to meet your needs. When you're faithful, you can count on God to meet your needs. But i got to ask some questions, okay? So here's my questions. First batch, what are you most afraid of these days? 
I mean, what are the fears that are driving your heart and driving your relationship with God right now? Do you trust that He'll provide? And here's another one. Does it really make sense? I mean, think about it for a minute. Does it really make sense to trust God with your salvation or trust God with your kids but not your finances? I mean, isn't that illogical if you think about it? God, I want a home in heaven. God, please watch out for my children. Oh, but, you know, with this, when it comes to finances, I don't want you involved. Stay over there. I mean, does that really make sense when you think about it? No, it's, it's illogical. Spock would go, Captain, that is illogical. And he would be right, okay? Spock would be right, okay? So here's, here's some homework this week as it relates to this passage from, from, from 2 Kings. Uh, step number one, make God's needs, make God's agenda your top priority. Uh, that's, that's woven into Matthew. You know, seek his kingdom first and all these things will be added to you. Make God's agenda the top thing on your list and start looking and asking, what does God want? What does God want? Where is God moving? What does God want from me? How can I be obedient today? How can I be faithful today? What do you want, God? Um, and the second thing is, take that step of faith. I mean, seriously, when it, when it comes to finances, um, it might mean giving off the top instead of the bottom, but take a step of faith. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Last month, through Leadership Jesmond County, I got to do the Asbury University uh, Challenge Ropes course. Those things are 30, 60, 90 feet up in the air. And I am deathly afraid of heights. In fact, there were four other people in my group that were deathly afraid of heights. So, I've, you know, you get harnessed up, you put on a helmet, you've got all this gear, and you're climbing up this thing. And when you get to the top and you look down, your brain tells you what is true and real. Death. <laughs> you fall, you die. Or worse, you live and... This is UK1. We're inbound 20 minutes. <laughs> okay. okay. Either way, it's lose-lose, lose-lose, no matter how you slice it. It's bad. Okay. But I did something the other four people didn't. I swallowed really hard because you have this harness on. And I jumped. Before I did the challenge part at all, I jumped because I knew I've got to know that this thing is going to hold me. And sure enough, it did. I mean, it hurt because it goes, you know. But I went around the ropes course and I did the zip line and I had a grand old time, even though my heart was racing. And every time I looked down, oh, that's right, death. But I knew, I knew the harness would hold because I had taken that step. The other four people, they didn't. And every step along the way, they're about ready to have a heart attack. And, and one of them, it took 15 minutes to get her to, to go through the zip line. And she kept saying to the guy, just push me, just push me. This is challenge by choice, ma'am. You have to jump yourself. <laughs> no, just push me, please. I can't do it. <laughs> I'm going to die. Ah! <laughs> okay? That's what a step of faith is. <laughs> it's jumping off and finding that, okay, I can count on God. And it's scary, but when God comes through, it, it kind of pumps up the confidence, okay? And financially, that means, maybe it means uh, making a commitment to, to do percentage living. Have you ever heard of percentage living? Percentage living is when you take, okay, if you make a gazillion dollars a year, you only live on 80% of that. You give 10% away, you save 10% for a rainy day, and you live on 80% of it. Um, maybe there's a step of faith you need to take in a relationship, 
or there's a job change you think God's wanting you to do, or a ministry avenue he, you think he's wanting you to step out into, um, take that step of faith. But here's my caveat. Don't forget the onion of God's will, right? Onion? What is that? Well, it's, I like to think of a three-layer onion, and it's kind of a thing that can prevent real big disasters most of the time. And the onion is this. Is there anything in God's Word that tells that speaks to this decision I'm about to make or what I'm contemplating? I mean, is, if I do this, in other words, does it violate something in Scripture? Or is there something about Scripture that comes into play with this decision? And then the second thing, have I prayed about it? Not just once, in the car, driving down the road real quick. God, I need to know, okay, great, thanks. <laughs> okay, but have I prayed about this over a period of time? And then the third layer, have I sought wise counsel from people who have my best interests at heart, people of faith who have my best interests at heart. You know, remembering the onion and practicing it can help you from, can help prevent jumping off that thing and then realizing about two seconds later that the harness wasn't connected. That's bad. You don't want to do that, okay? All right, so second, second, the homework assignment is take a step, take a step of faith. Uh, here's what I want for you this week and, and always. I want you to trust God each and every day that he's going to provide what you need and not just when things are desperate. I mean, when you think about it, when things are desperate and you've got the bank calling you and they're foreclosure, foreclosure, okay? Desperate people, they don't even have to go to church. They don't even have to be Christians. Desperate people will, God, get me out of this, okay? In moments of desperation, everybody will cry out to God and all of a sudden hope that God will come through for them. Why wait until things are desperate? Why wait till that moment? Why not every day take a step and have the confidence that God's going to come through? Remember, when you're faithful, you can count on God to provide what you need.